As we look in the scripture this morning, Father, might your spirit be revealing to each one of us those things you want for us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We are back in Ruth this morning. Before we jump in, uh, we have a big, thick dictionary at our house. It's in the living room. It's within easy grasp, and it's not unusual that we're at the breakfast table or reading a book or whatever, that we grab it to find out what a word, a new word means, or what the Greek or Latin root is. And uh, I find these things fascinating, Rose. I don't know. Some other people don't. But one one neat word uh, I'll introduce you to this morning, you've probably heard, is serendipity. Serendipity. A neat word, basically, it means fortunate or accidental discoveries or occurrences. Happy accidents, I like to call them. Serendipity is a fairly recently coined term. A British writer, Horace Walpole, coined this term in 1754. And he coined it, the, the root of that serendipity was serendip. Do you know this, Vilai? Is this old hat? Have you ever heard this before? She's looking at me like, where is he going? Okay, anyway, uh, there was an Arabian fairy tale called the Three Princes of Serendip. And Serendip was the old name for the island of Sri Lanka, or Ceylon. And in this story, the king has three sons, and basically the story is about their adventures and misadventures. But anyway, the story has this habit of continuing to have happy accidental discoveries. They're not looking for something, but along it comes, and it's a good thing, it's a fortunate thing, it's a positive. And so Walpole, having just read this fairy tale, took the term serendip and then coined it into serendipity and introduced that term to a letter to a friend. That's where we get it. So serendipity is this this series of happy accidents in your life or mine in which something unlooked for comes along and it's a benefit. You don't control serendipity. It's an accident. It's not what you go out looking for. It happens. You don't control it. In the book of Ruth, which we've already started, one of the key themes of this book, and there's so much going on in this that you hate to give away too much too soon, but it comes up again and again, is that God is in control behind the scenes in this story. And we'll talk a little bit more about serendipity and God's version of that, but he is in control of the details of Ruth's life and Ruth's story, as well as yours and mine, the choices we make, the serendipitous events that shape our lives. So we're going to get back into Ruth 2 this morning. I'm going to start at verse 22 of chapter 1, just so that this puts us in context. You remember that Naomi, who's one of the center figures here, Naomi left full, came back empty. And basically the whirlwind of life, not serendipity, the whirlwind of life came into her life and took away a husband and both sons. And she's come back without hope to her hometown of Bethlehem, and all she's got is her foreign Moabite daughter-in-law with her. Two widows, no hope, no provision, no serendipity at this point. So at verse 22 in chapter 1, and we'll only go into the first three verses of chapter 2, so Naomi returned to Bethlehem, and with her Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvests. And if there's a hint of serendipity, it's probably right here. They happen to come back at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2, Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. I'm going to stop here for a minute. 
you know, if you're the storyteller, you know, if you tell stories well, the way my friend Gail tells jokes well, you know, you're practiced at it, you know what to do to heighten the story as you go along. This verse, why is it here? Why is Boaz stuck in verse 1 here? This makes no sense. Makes no sense as far as the storyline goes, but God and the author, the human author, are dropping this little thing in front of us that we stoop down, we pick up, and oh, by the way, Naomi does have a relative around here. And by the way, this guy's name is Boaz, and he's a man of great wealth, and, and importantly, he is a relative, and this becomes a big issue later. If you know the story, you know. Later on in chapter 2, when Ruth is in the field gleaning, which we'll talk about in a minute, Boaz, whose favor she already has, although she doesn't know it, Boaz tells his reapers, he says that when you're harvesting, you drop, depending on your version, drop handfuls on purpose. As you're reaping the crop, the barley, you drop, you take handfuls of barley and you drop them on the ground on purpose. Because she's coming behind you, she'll see them and she'll pick them up. And God is dropping a handful on purpose here in verse 1. He's telling us we're stooping down, here's this thing he's dropped, and oh, by the way, I want you to know, even though Boaz is not part of the story yet, that there's this guy named Boaz, and he's related, and he's wealthy. And I'm just telling you, just in case, it'll pop up later. So at verse 1, we get this handful on purpose left for us to tell us that, by the way, Boaz is somebody you want to know for the rest of the story. Verses 2 and 3, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. And for a little kids, I don't know, probably everyone in here knows what glean is, but, you know, in these days, I don't know what it's like with modern farm equipment, but in these days you went along by hand with a knife or a scythe, you cut the grain, and as you did, grain had already fallen on the ground, or as you harvested, some grain would fall on the ground. And so the gleaners were the folks who came along behind, and they picked up the stray kernels or the stray small heads that were left on the ground. So that's what Ruth is going to do. She's going to go out. She's not reaping. She's just picking up what's been left behind, what's escaped the reapers. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now, it's not clear if Naomi told her about this or if she comes in and they've been here long enough to know, but God had made provision for people in Naomi and Ruth's circumstances and people like them in the law. So that in Leviticus 19, I think in 23, and in one passage in Deuteronomy, God commanded the landowners, the folks who had the crops in the ground, this is out of Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. He commanded, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of the harvest, those stray kernels that had fallen as you went through the harvest process, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. This was God's provision, if you will, for the folks who didn't have provision otherwise. He said, when you harvest your land, you are intentionally, you leave the corners there. Don't go to the very corner. And when you reap, it's a given that some fruit has already fallen on the ground or will as you go through and harvest. You're not to pick that up. 
because in doing that, leaving the corners or leaving the gleanings, the poor and the needy, another passage says the alien, Ruth is both an alien, a foreigner, and the needy, will be able to come through behind and pick up that grain and that will provide for them. It was God's version, if you will, of an early form of welfare. It wasn't free. They had to go out and they gleaned in the fields. It was hard work. And it wasn't like reaping full heads. You were picking up, remember, what was left behind or just the corners. And, of course, the corners would be gone in short order. Anyone that was going to glean would head to the corners first. But this was God's provision. And so Ruth knew this. And remember, two widows, we don't know where they're living or what other means of provision they have at this point, but Ruth knows we need some breakfast and some dinner, and I'm going to go hit the fields and glean. So Ruth is doing what she can. The place I want to spend our time this morning is at verse 3, and it's a very short phrase here, but verse 3, did you notice when we read through here, Boaz is introduced in verse 1 for no reason at all, it appears. But then he shows up in verse 3, and he's going to start the story in verse 4, but it says in verse 3, she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz that the storyteller has just informed us is a relative, a close relative, which comes up later, and he's wealthy, by the way. Now, when you're reading the story and it says she happened, this makes it sound like it just, it just happened that way. And in fact, if you read various translations, New American Standard says she happened, it happened, it chanced, it just so happened, as luck would have it, it almost sounds as if there's no intention in it whatsoever. And on Ruth's part, there probably isn't. There probably isn't. But in this story, she happened is really God at work in her story and in a much bigger story to accomplish his purposes. So she happened, as luck would have it, it just so happened that she chose Boaz as part of the field. Ruth's going along. Who knows for what reason she chose this part? Remember, their fields were joined, and you wouldn't know, the landowners would know, but you might not know where one field ended and another began. And she just so happened to hit Boaz's field. So God knows, we know, because God's telling us that he's in the details, and he is in her choosing that part of the field that belongs to Boaz. Uh, when you look at... Uh, happy coincidences. We're not going further in the story this morning, but we know this is a happy coincidence. This is serendipity that she ends up in the field of Boaz. When you look into this, uh, this idea, this concept of coincidence, chance, luck, things just the way things turn out, there's lots of explanations or attempts at explanation for this stuff. Um, science, have you guys heard of the chaos theory? Chaos theory? This is a big deal in, so, in math especially, but in science and physics, chaos theory uh, is a very, what would I say, exciting realm. If math can be exciting, this is an exciting realm of higher math and physics. And chaos theory seeks to explain events or occurrences or sequence of, sequences of events or occurrences that appear to be unrelated. So, uh, have you heard the thing that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, will it cause a hurricane on the North Atlantic? Well, the thought here is that how could a butterfly here cause this over here? They would appear to be entirely unrelated. 
but maybe they're not. The uh, Diddy, if you go online, uh, check out uh, under Google or any search engine, chaos theory. There's lots out there, mostly at universities right now, research scientists and mathematicians. But um, the old Diddy, for lack of a, uh, let's see if I can get this right. For lack of a nail, the horse loses his shoe. For lack of the horseshoe, the horse can't run. For lack of the horse, the messenger can't get there. For lack of the messenger, the king loses the battle. For lack of the battle, he loses the war and the kingdom. And so the, at the end of the sequence is, he lost the kingdom because of a nail. Now, if you say you're going to lose your kingdom because of a nail king, he'd say that's ridiculous. One thing doesn't appear to be related to the other, but it is. There's this chain or this sequence of apparently unrelated events that end up being tightly connected to one another, only you can't see it at the time. You know, if you look at philosophy or religion, uh, throughout history, we try and grapple, why do these things happen? Or why did it happen this way? You know, you think of words like fate. Fate, that it was fate that it happened. And fate is this impersonal force behind the scenes in the universe that causes things to happen a certain way, but impersonal. Someone says it was fate, that means it had to happen this way, couldn't happen otherwise, but it's not a personal God, it's just it's a force in the universe that constrains things to occur in a particular way. And other religions, you might, uh, apart from Christianity, you might say that a, a God or a kind of God was behind the scenes, benevolently or otherwise, causing things to work together to a particular end. If you're a Christian, which we'll talk about later, uh, biblically there's a very clear teaching about the way God works things behind the scenes and uh, that God is at the center of chaos theory, so to speak. Um, in the movie uh, that Brad Runyon drug us to Friday night, he really didn't, but he was gracious enough to come with us. We saw the second in the uh, trio of Matrix movies, and there's really some, there's some lousy footage in the movie, which I won't go into, but one of the key things I want to mention this morning is, just like the first movie did, this deals at a philosophical level with cause and effect. What's behind my choices? And in fact, it's interesting throughout the movie, this philosophical debate comes up. One character in the movie says, all is cause and effect. You're not a free moral agent making free moral choices. You choose something because of actions or uh, events outside your control having an impact on you which compel you to do a certain thing that you're really not free, you're really not making choices. It's simply in a, a chain of occurrences of cause and effect. And it's interesting. Uh, this is a lot to grapple with. And Christians grapple with this too. With the scriptures, we still grapple with this. But these are big questions. How does one thing affect another? Am I a free moral agent? Am I really making choices? Or am I pushed from one thing to another? Cause and effect. These are big items. In the story of Ruth, cause and effect, serendipity, gets down to the more biblical concept of providence. Providence. This is another good word. And it comes just from the word which means provide. Provide. Uh, if, if something's providential, it provides you with something. Providence with a P 
used to be used routinely as God's divine provision for you or your needs or your circumstances. God divinely providing something you needed behind the scenes. This was common to speak of years ago. It's far less common today. But in the story of Ruth, it's not just serendipity. It's God's kind of serendipity that got Ruth to that field. It's a happy accident as far as Ruth's concerned. But in this story, we know that God is the one behind the scenes. God is the one controlling choices in some cases and outcomes as well. So that the phrase, she happened... It happened. As luck would have it, it chanced. This is behind the story. This is behind the story. This is the, one of the keys to the story, as a matter of fact. Remember at the end of, I think it was the introduction to this book, we talked about the choices that some key characters had made to leave the land of Israel and looked like a good choice at the time, but didn't bear fruit short term, just seemed to lead to death. We didn't know where one thing was going and another was beginning, but we said... When we face life's choices, we want to pray. Remember we said God's absent from the first four or five verses of the book. He jumps right back in. But he's absent when they're making these decisions. And that one of the keys for us is to pray, to ask God for his counsel and his wisdom when we make decisions. It was to ask counsel from others when we make decisions. And then in the end, it was to trust. It was to trust God to be at work in the good or bad decisions we were making, doing our best, was to ask God to bless those or to sovereignly override or supervise those decisions and the choices and the paths we were taking. Now, in this story, it's about two widows right now, isn't it? And this is a great story at a very, very human level, very day-to-day level, This is a great story in which it shows that God is at work behind the scenes to provide for Naomi and Ruth. And if this is all the story that there was, it would be enough. That God shows, in fact, another key term in this book is the Hebrew hesed or kesed, depending on its spelling. But it means loyal love. Uh, It's translated loving kindness, faithful love. It's a love that continues to, to act on someone else's behalf. We see that coming up through this story. And if all we saw was this hesed or God's faithful love to Ruth and Naomi, it would be enough. He's showing that he condescends, as it were. Here are these two unfortunate widows. They're back here. They have nothing. And God says, guys, ladies, I'm going to interact on your behalf, and I'm going to provide for you. And part of that provision is Ruth walking down the road, and this part of the field looks okay, and I'll go in and I'll glean here. But, of course, there's more to the story than that. Because at the end of the story, this Ruth clo- or, excuse me, the book of Ruth closes with the genealogy that follows her. And, of course, it's for a purpose, because Ruth's great-grandson is King David. So we learn at the end of the story that God isn't just providing for these two widows. He is, and that's a good thing. But by the way, they happen to be links in a bigger chain than they realize. When she just happens upon the field of Boaz, it's more than her provision and Naomi's food for that day that's being taken care of. Because this is another link in the serendipitous chain that God's at work providing that's going to lead Ruth to a husband in Boaz 
And Boaz's and Ruth's child is going to have a child who's going to have a child who's going to become the king of Israel. This is God fulfilling promises to Adam and to Abraham hundreds and thousands of years prior. And as far as Ruth knows, she's just going along, looking for a place to grab a few kernels of grain, and God is, in, is forming through her a link in his chain to get King David on the scene. And by the way, if that weren't enough, there's a bigger chain than that, isn't there? Because where does Ruth come up again in a genealogy, by the way? When we get Jesus' genealogy in the New Testament, Ruth is in the chain. By the way, God isn't just providing for Ruth and Naomi. He's giving her a husband to produce an heir who will be the king of Israel, who, by the way, is also in the line of the chain that produces Jesus Christ the Messiah. And this all comes down to a little phrase that says, She happened upon the field that belonged to Boaz. This is serendipity with a capital S. This is providence with a capital P. This is God at work in her desire and her need to go out and get a meal. And God's at work behind the scenes providing for the salvation of the world in a foreign Moabite woman picking a few kernels of grain out of a field that belongs to someone she doesn't know. This is mind-blowing to me. This is chaos theory at its best. This is the butterfly in Brazil flapping its wings, creating the hurricane in North Carolina. This is the horseshoe nail in the kingdom. This is as good as it gets. But it's not chaotic in God's economy because he's the one at work. So it's not in the end, it's not chaos theory. It's providential theory. It's God at work in the world. He is in the details of life. He is the one weaving the fabric of your life and mine in such a way that we end up where he wants us and we meet the people he wants us to meet. We end up in the activities he wants us to be involved in. He's the one behind the scenes orchestrating. Let me read you three verses here. Ephesians 1, verse 11. Paul says, We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, that's God's foreordaining, to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. What I want you to hear is exclusively, inclusively, God works all things after the counsel of his will. This isn't just true for Ruth and Naomi in a book in the Bible. It's true for you and me. This is exclusive. This doesn't allow anything else. This says God works all things, everything, after the counsel of his will. Nothing escapes his will. He's omnipotent and he's omnipresent. He has all power and he's everywhere. Nothing can stop his will. In Job 42, at the end of a great book in which there's been these philosophical arguments back and forth too, just like the Matrix, Why did it happen this way? I made this choice. I did it this way, but I got this. How did that happen? Why did this transpire in my life? I thought A led to B, but my life's fallen apart. And Job argues with God, and Job's friends argue with him. And at the end of it all, Job says this, I know that, speaking to God, you can do all things, 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Ephesians 1 says, He works all things after the counsel of His will. Job 42 says, No purpose of God's can be thwarted. God has purposes for you and me, and they cannot be thwarted. Nothing can overrule them. Frankly, the bad decisions you and I make don't overrule them. The good decisions we make are part of the links in the chain He has for us. God is in control behind the scenes. And then Romans 8.28 is the most clear, and perhaps my favorite, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. God causes all things to work together for good. Again, that doesn't exclude anything. All things work together for good. Now, you know, if we read this back into the story of Ruth, and if we make Ruth responsible for this, we've just loaded her with the sins of the world, haven't we? We say, Ruth, by the way, the choice you make this morning determines the salvation of the world. What do you mean? Well, the field you choose to glean in will determine who you marry and whether or not Israel gets a king and whether or not the world gets a savior. Wow, she's thinking. I'm walking down the road thinking all of eternity. Mankind's future rests on my shoulders. But of course, that's not the way of it, is it? See, in the story, she's just, she's just going out and making an everyday decision. She doesn't know. That's the beauty. You and I don't have to know where a thing goes. You know, we read that poem, Two Paths to Virgin Yellow Wood. See, we see life. She saw the field. She's walking along, and she's thinking, gee, I've got to get some food. And this field looks okay, and so I go left or I go right. And we face the choices we have in life, don't we? And we face those paths in the wood, and we say, well, gosh, left looks good. I guess I'll go left. Or right seems wise. I guess I'll go right. But as Robert Frost said, way leads on to way, and we don't know how a thing will turn out. We don't have to. We don't have to. God is sovereignly in control behind the scenes. That's the beauty of this kind of serendipity. God's in control, so we don't have to be. So we're free to make the best decisions we can. By the way, in saying all this, I don't want to undermine the responsibility God gives us in making good decisions. You know, God will reward us in eternity for honoring Him. He calls us to make good decisions, godly decisions. This doesn't undermine that. And if we choose to dishonor Him in this life, we're going to lose reward in eternity. Absolutely, the Scripture teaches it. It has nothing to do with salvation, but it does have to do with future reward. 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 both teach this. But the biggest picture is that God's will will be accomplished in your life and mine. All things serve His purposes and His counsels. Nothing that He plans is thwarted, and all things work together for our good. So that when we're making those choices and we see the fork in the roads, or we're wondering what to do to make a living, what should we do for that next job? What school should my child go to? Where should I go to school next year or next semester? We're down with Ruth and we're choosing the field to go glean in. And that's all we're responsible for. Because the story here shows she makes a choice and she doesn't know, but God is superintending behind that and above that and through that to accomplish His will. 
Ruth isn't bringing this to pass. She's an agent in the process. But it's not her power that links these links in the chain together. It's God's. So this teaching that God is providentially, sovereignly, behind and through and overall accomplishing His will, it leaves you and I free. It doesn't load us down with a burden we can't carry. It frees us to say, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to make the best decisions we can, godly decisions that honor you. But having done that, we know that even, gosh, if we blow it, that you're sovereignly in control, accomplishing your purpose. You know what? I can rest in that. I find great peace and comfort in that. I can't blow God's plan. You can't blow God's plan. He's going to accomplish all his purposes. They're going to happen. So that when you and I are choosing our school or our job or where we go to lunch or what field we work in, God can make a link in that chain wherever he wants. We don't know where it's going, but we don't need to. His plans are good, and they're going where he wants them to. That's what we know, and that's what we can live with. Let me close with a story. When I was looking this up, I was at the library looking up serendipity and coincidences. And I found a book. It's full of stories of coincidence. And I'm going to read you. This is short. It's one page, but bear with me. Uh, coincidental story. You never know where a thing will go. This is, called, this is from a book called When God Winks by Squire Rushnell. Uh, his God, he, he talks about God winking is what he calls the coincidences, the serendipitous events in life. He calls that God winking. I'm not sure his God is Jesus, or I don't think he is, but this is a great story, and it bears repeating here for our purposes this morning in Ruth. Beth couldn't stop sobbing. Just two days earlier, things had seemed so good. Her father's heart transplant appeared to have been successful. Then the 6 a.m. phone call. Dad had died. Please come home. She quickly arranged a flight home and dashed to the New Orleans airport. At her gate was just one solitary jean-clad man reading a paper. As she waited for her flight, tears streamed down her cheeks. Her dad was too young to die, only 59. He had been getting better. It wasn't fair for him to be taken so soon. What would she do without him? She was lost in her grief. Suddenly, a comforting hand was on her shoulder. The voice was warm and oddly familiar. Are you all right? It was the man in the jeans. Speaking with him seemed natural. He was nice, and he was concerned about her loss, and there was a sense that she had known him before. You're Kevin Costner, she blurted as it came to her. He smiled and nodded. He explained that he was in New Orleans scouting for an upcoming film, JFK, and was waiting for his private plane. They chatted. He comforted her, placing an arm around her shoulder like a brother, staying with her until her plane arrived, and waving off advisors who came to tell him his plane was ready until the time came for him to walk her to the jetway. I'll be back in New Orleans in a couple of months for the shoot. Come by the set and see how a movie is made, he smiled. Two months later, Beth was juggling her final studies for an MBA while working in the financial department of a New Orleans hospital. She had some legal papers that had to get out that day, and she needed to mail them from a post office clear across town near Lafitte Historical Park. Driving past the park, she noticed trucks used for movie making. She recalled Kevin Costner at the airport comforting her and inviting her to visit the set of his film. The notion crossed her mind that perhaps that was Kevin's movie. But she had work to do, and so she carried on. 
Returning from the post office, she passed Lafitte Park again. This time she hesitated, thinking that, after all, it was late afternoon, no point returning to the office. She stopped and approached a security person who confirmed that the film in production was indeed JFK. Would you please tell Kevin that the sobbing woman from the airport is here? Kevin smiled broadly when the security person spoke with him, looked up, and waved her over. He greeted her warmly, gave her a place to sit, and told her that someone would come by to stay with her. Moments later, Beth noticed a handsome, well-tanned man approaching. He's the best-looking thing I've ever seen, she said to herself. Roger Armstrong introduced himself as the film's public relations executive. They chatted quietly as the actors and crew went about their work, and Roger explained what was going on. That evening on the phone, Beth told her mother with firm finality, Today, I have met the man I'm going to marry. Beth returned to the set several times over the next few weeks, ostensibly to see how movies are made and say hello to Kevin Costner, but in reality, to see Roger. One afternoon, Kevin invited them to watch a basketball game on television in his dressing room. Beth took the opportunity to ask Roger if he would like to go out for dinner. Sure, when? How about tonight? It was an evening of instant confirmation. They were soulmates. Several weeks later, Roger called Beth from the film's next shooting location and told her he missed her. He convinced her to move to Los Angeles. Eight months later, they were married. On the day of her father's death, Beth could never have seen how this very sorrowful piece of her life's puzzle would change her life in a positive way. This struck me as so similar to our story, a death bringing tragedy, and yet in the midst of the tragedy, God's provision for a future husband. And by the way, she's the one proposing to him. That's going to come up later in our story, by the way. But in this story, and I don't know where these guys are at spiritually, uh, Beth and Roger, I have no idea. But you know, God's providence, let's just assume for discussion's sake that they don't know Jesus and that they're not saved at this point. You know, God's providence, he is a good God and he does good to all on the earth. In fact, it says in the Gospels, he causes his sun to shine on the good and the evil. He gives rain to people who never acknowledge him. He gives crops in their season, Paul says in Acts. His providence, his goodness extends to everyone on the earth. But you know, for Christians, for those who know him, we have these additional promises, not just that he's a good God and that he gives us provision because he's a good God, but that in our life, in yours and mine, he'll work all things after the counsel of his will. And the big thing in Romans is that means he's conforming us to the image of his son. That's the big picture. And that he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And that no matter what tragedy you face here, no matter what pit you're coming out of, God says he'll use that. It doesn't escape his will. He'll use that in your life for your good. So that the death of a husband, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a job, the choices we make, they don't defeat God's purposes in our life. They're links in the serendipitous chain that he's forging for us. And you know the other side about this? Just like Ruth, a lot of times he's not just at work in your life to provide for you. He's providing for you to be a provision for 
someone else in another situation, in another circumstance. Ruth doesn't know that this provision for her provides for Israel and the world, but it does. And sometimes the sorrows that you come out of or the choices you're faced with, God doesn't just bless you in them. He blesses you and He guides you because He's going to use those events in your life for the sake of someone else. We are links in a change. The events of our life are links in a change. It's not just fate. It's not just happy coincidences. Biblically, it's God's providential, sovereign control behind the scenes to accomplish His will. So wherever you're at in your life, whatever choices you're making, whatever place you find yourself in, sorrow or joy, you and I can know every day. In fact, we can say, thank you every day. God, thanks. You're in control. Thanks, you're behind the scenes making provision for my needs and for the needs of others. Thanks that I don't have to carry the weight of the world. I don't have to provide a savior or even tomorrow's meal, so to speak. I just need to honor you and take one step after another and trust you to get me where you want me and use me in the lives of others as you want to. This is like, this is like getting saved. You know, when you realize Jesus has provided your salvation, you know what you can do? You can throw yourself with reckless abandon on a God who provides salvation for you. And from a book like Ruth, you can throw yourself with reckless abandon into the arms of a God who's at work sovereignly and providentially to provide for your current needs and your future needs and for the future needs of others through you. This is great. This is a win-win-win situation. I love this. It's not fate. It's not an impersonal force. It's not chaos theory. It's God's providential, sovereign, omnipotent, benevolent care for you and I, and it's Him accomplishing His purposes in time so they'll be accomplished in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, it is absolutely mind-blowing your control over life and over time. Just think of a chemist I spoke with yesterday. Lord, the incredible complexity of a single cell. Frankly, it's still beyond our finding out. A simple single cell, Lord, we can't figure it out. You know it inside out. And Lord, much less the events of life or the things that shape our todays and our tomorrows how one thing affects another, Lord, or where a choice or a decision would lead. Father, we, we have no control over these things. Whether the horse loses its shoe or the butterfly beats its wings, Lord, these, these sequences, these chains of events, they're past our finding out. But, Lord, they are not past yours. In fact, not only do you know them, but you're in control of them. Lord, and I just, I know I have particularly found comfort in the thought, in the knowledge, in the teaching out of this book and elsewhere in your scriptures, that your goodwill in the lives of each one of us is going to be fulfilled. We can't blow it. You ask us to participate in what you're doing, Lord, but even when we make mistakes, even when we willfully go astray, because of your goodness and your power, you still use even those things for our good. Lord, only you can do that. And Lord, help each one of us 
in faith, in trust, in confidence in you, throw ourselves with reckless abandon in the arms of a God who can't lie, who can't fail, who accomplishes all his goodwill on our behalf. Lord, we love you. Thanks for your salvation. Thanks for your future. In Jesus' name, amen.